Welcome to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. I'm John Tanzan, Washington, working on this program very much. Here are some of the top stories making news across Sudan and South Sudan this Thursday, April 28, 2022. Four people are killed during random shooting in West Darfur State. There is a plan to send a plane to West Darfur to airlift wounded persons as part of a quick response to provide treatment. The government has prepared a number of hospitals in Khartoum to receive the wounded. And Human Rights Watch is calling on the Sudanese authorities to free protesters. Since the coup in October last year, the military junta carried an organized campaign on silencing dissent in Sudan, targeting the protest movement. And evidently, they had resorted to detaining individuals in comunicado, forcibly disappearing scores, torture, ill-treatment, and sexual violence. We'll have these stories and more coming up on South Sudan in Focus. At least four people were killed last night in Aljinena town of Sudan's West Darfur following a random shooting. Eyewitnesses say markets and shopping centers have partially reopened this morning, but residents are still living in fear. For VOA News, Michael Atit reports from Khartoum. A delegation from the federal government in Khartoum arrived today in Aljinena to assess the security, humanitarian and health situations after deadly violence that happened earlier this week. The delegation headed by Abdul Baghi Abdul Ghadir, a member of the Sovereign Council, will meet with the state health officials and representatives of non-governmental organizations to find ways of providing humanitarian aid to the affected communities. Sudan's acting minister of information, Jerham Abdul Ghadir, says authorities plan to airlift critically wounded people to Khartoum in the coming days. He says the decision was made during the meeting of the Council of Ministers in Khartoum due to the tense security situation in Aljanena. There is a plan to send a plane to West Darfur to airlift wounded persons as part of a quick response to provide treatment. The government has prepared a number of hospitals in Khartoum to receive the wounded. Local officials in West Darfur State said about 200 people were killed and hundreds of others wounded during the weekend violence. In a statement released yesterday, the Central Committee for Sudanese Doctors confirmed 176 people have been killed and 220 others wounded during the clashes. Eyewitnesses in Aljanina town said four people were killed and one injured during a random shooting last night in the town. They say the motive behind the shooting is not known. Is speaking to this program from Aljanina, Dr. Muhammad Saleh, director of nursing department at the hospital, says the facility has remained closed for five straight days because health workers are afraid to go back to work. He says the hospital's closure has affected hundreds of patients, including those with underlying diseases. Most of those who have been affected are people who are suffering from hemorrhage, women with labor, people who are in the intensive care unit, and hemodialysis. There are also children who are suffering from asthma 
and are in need of oxygen. Dr. Saleh says some people might die at home due to lack of medical attention. He called on the authorities to provide security so that medical workers can return to work. Al-Janena resident Al-Faki Musa says life has for the most part returned to normal for residents and some markets and shopping centers have reopened but says people are still living in fear. Markets have partially opened, and the situation seems to be promising. We haven't had any gunshots since morning, and people are moving and buying food commodities. Earlier this week, the Sudanese Security and Defense Council ordered additional troops be deployed in West Darfur State to maintain the law and prevent further intercommunal fighting in Krenik, where the fighting broke out, and in the state capital, Al-Janena. For VOA News, I am Michael Atit in Khartoum. Still in Sudan, Human Rights Watch says Sudanese security forces have unlawfully detained hundreds of protesters since December 2021 and, and dozens of others disappeared as part of a crackdown on anti-coup protests following the October 25th military takeover. The rights watchdog is calling on Sudanese authorities to release all those unlawfully detained and is calling on the international community to impose targeted sanctions on those responsible for rights abuses in Sudan. Nabil Biagio reached Mohammed Osman, Sudan's researcher at Human Rights Watch, to discuss the latest report. The report we released today is, is based on interviews with over 20 people, and that includes released detainees, families, and lawyers as well. The, the, the report documents and captures how since the coup um, in October last year, the military junta carried an organized campaign on silencing dissent in Sudan, targeting the protest movement. And evidently, they had resorted to detaining individuals in comunicado, forcibly disappearing scores, torture, ill-treatment, and sexual violence. This also um, based on the findings we had include ill-treatment of children, who some of them were even had their clothes torn and stripped naked. Sudan is now ruled by the military in alliance with other armed groups and security forces. Who is carrying these arrests and who have been the target of them? So yes, as our research finds, there are many forces involved. You have the police units, including the anti-riot police, regular police, and the Central Reserve Police that has already been designated um, for sanctions by the U.S. government, being involved in the ill-treatment, especially upon apprehension and incidents of sexual assault. On the other hand, you have the General Intelligence Services, formerly known as NIS, um, which Al Burhan, the army leader, restored their arrest powers, appears to be actively outsourcing detention business to prisons. Um, where in the past they had the practice, well, they would detain people in their own detention spots. However, they are doing so in a way that um, waive responsibility on the detainees' welfare and complicates access and knowing the whereabouts of those detainees by families and lawyers. You also have another um, active apparatus in the suppression, um, which is the central, uh, sorry, the criminal investigative directorate, known also as the federal police, um, 
who also we found evidence um, on them detaining individuals, active members of the movement in a way that constitute enforced disappearances. Your report states that there has been ill treatment of those detained in Comunicado, including torture and the threat of sexual violence. Tell me about that and how Human Rights Watch established its findings around these allegations. We talked to released detainees, families and the lawyers who described how in many instances the federal police would deny having the relatives in the custody, for instance, before you know them finding that not to be accurate. Detainees in prisons, especially you know, in Soba prison in Khartoum, are denied access to family or legal defense, a basic due process rights. We have two cases where women detainees experience sexual assault, in one case by the police, and there is another 18-year-old, sorry, 19-year-old woman who um, being taken by an unidentified force and being threatened by rape, coercing her to provide information on other protesters. So what are you calling for in terms of your recommendations? So after almost over six months since the coup at the outset, there is a call to the international regional community to embrace the demands of the movement and to not sideline their aspirations to build a rights-abiding country. But in terms of the immediate needs, we definitely found a lot of evidence how this declared state of emergency is used as a pretext to justify abuses. And therefore, it's essential for the international actors to push for the lifting of the state of emergency, to push for allowing independent monitors to access detention sites, and more importantly, following on the calls for targeted sanctions, we are asking international actors to roll out targeted sanctions against commanders and leaders of the criminal investigative police and the general intelligence services that to be found involved in the documented abuses. That was Mohammed Osman, Sudan's researcher at Human Rights Watch, speaking with my colleague Nabil Biajo here in Washington. The UN Women, in collaboration with the African Union, launched the second phase of the African Girls Can Code initiative in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. The program, funded by the Belgium government, brought around 6,000 young women from 11 priority countries across Africa to participate in the science, technology, engineering, and, and mathematics field known as STEM. As Nabil Biagio reports, an information communication technology expert in South Sudan says the absence of Africa's youngest nation at the conference means a lot to girls in South Sudan. It is therefore a priority for UN women to address the gender digital divide through initiatives such as the African Girls Can Code, which is a catalytic, continental initiative that advances women and girls' access to and their participation in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics education training and research activities at all levels. That is Zabib Kavuma, UN Women Deputy Regional Director, delivering opening remarks at the African Girls Can Code Initiative Conference underway in Tanzania this morning. Kavuma points out that 71% of STEM and ICT jobs are occupied by males. 
Females have only 28% of those jobs. She says the program aims to close the digital divide between the two genders by encouraging, training and mentoring women in ICT and STEM fields. Kabuma says women and girls face several hurdles that either keep them out or force them to drop out of technology-related fields or classes. Firstly, family responsibilities requiring women to manage such responsibilities and the difficulties in attaining work-life balance. Also, social patriarchal attitudes influenced by socioeconomic values and beliefs which discourage women from pursuing STEM careers. And lastly, unconducive work environments and remuneration, which women must overcome, including biased stereotypes about their competencies. The conference in Dar es Salaam brought together young women from priority countries, which are Niger, Mali, Mozambique, Burundi, Tanzania, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, South Africa, Senegal, and the DRC. Yinke Nika is the co-founder of the Juba-based nonprofit Go Girls, which provides mentorship to young women in ICT. Nika says she felt sad when she came across the program online and saw that South Sudan was not among the participating countries. I didn't feel good about South Sudan not being listed, and I think it's not only this, but several other opportunities, which you go online and South Sudan is not there, so you realize other East African countries are there or other African countries are there, but not South Sudan. So I guess it also calls for, from our side, a lot of networking and perhaps putting ourselves out there that we are here and we need to be part of this. Hana Matango is the UN country representative in Tanzania and one of the organizers of the program. Matango tells VOA the selection of countries to take part in the program was made in consultation with the African Union and other partners in each country. She says the program's organizers were looking for countries that have demonstrated commitment to girls' education and have the conducive environment for women to pursue and succeed in ICT careers. The criteria that was used was based on um, uh, common and um, understanding between these partners and where we felt that there was a conducive environment for the countries, especially the ministries of education and the ministries that are dealing with ICT to then carry this forward. At the end of the day, we want to have sustainable um, uh, um, uh, commitment and opportunities for women and, and the, the girls who are participating Nika says since she founded her organization in 2015, she and a handful of other colleagues have been struggling to get young women into the ICT industry. When I saw that opportunity online, I felt like this could be a very good platform for the girls who are at the university, who are doing computer science and IT, to be part of this, to learn, to expose, to network, because it's necessary. When I look at the sector in South Sudan, I mostly call it virgin because there are really very few ladies who are working in the field and I would really love to see more. Taking part in such programs would build confidence and trust among South Sudanese girls to learn from other girls, says Nika, who is also a member of South Sudan's National Communication Authority. She says women are dramatically underrepresented in ICT education and jobs in South Sudan. When then I was working at the University of Juba as a teaching assistant, then within a month I was selected as head department of computer science. And in computer science, we were two ladies then with my colleague. 
So, and we had one girl who was doing computer science, one girl who was doing IT. We felt so much challenged that we as young ladies who were in this field, we had only one girl in class in both departments. Nika says she felt a need to understand why more girls were not taking ICT courses. She says she will use her role to do more networking with regional and international partners so that South Sudan does not miss out on important opportunities to support women in ICT. UN Women says the African Girls Can Code initiative is a four-year program which will train and empower young girls aged 17 to 25 across Africa to become computer programmers, creators and designers, placing them on track to take up studies and careers in the information, communication and technology sector. For VOA News, I'm Nabil Biagio in Washington. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. Coming up, how is instability and climate change affecting investment in Africa? That story is coming up right after the break. What do you think? People speak out on important questions. The question today. Is there something about yourself that you would like to change? Definitely not. (laughs) No, because at least I know my life has been good. I've not been entertaining bad company. So to maybe to change my life, I need to start making at least new friends again. Life is all about learning. We learn every day. So in as much as we are still breathing, there are things we need to shed off. Currently, I would like to change my tummy. I'm growing a pot belly. So I'm exercising. I've bought an abdomen machine that's helping me to deal with it. And I want to lose weight, probably 5, 8 kilos. What do you think? A daily discussion of important questions from VOA. You are listening to South Sudan in Focus on the Voice of America. The Private Equity and Venture Capital Association also known as AVCA, says Africa attracted a record of $7.4 billion in private capital in 2021, more than double the year before. But while the continent provides ample possibilities for investors, it also presents challenges from instability to climate change. At this year's AVCA conference in Senegal, investors discussed some of the trends. Anika Hamstrag reports from Dakar. More than 500 people from some 50 countries filtered in and out of conference rooms at Dakar's Radisson Hotel Tuesday for day two of ABCA's annual gathering. Africa offers a rich environment for local and international investors, attendees say, as it has a growing youth population and consumer market. Alexia Alexandropoul is a research manager at ABCA. She said investor interest in the continent has been largely driven by the attraction of financial technology companies. A number of sizable infrastructure deals also contributed to investment growth. And these infrastructure investments were focused on renewable energy, transportation, communication services, and they support African governments to fill the infrastructure gap on the continent. Yeah, and we expect to see more these trends to continue in the years to come. Some African governments, such as Senegal's, have successfully attracted international investment in recent years. In 2019, it became the second African country to pass a Startup Act, which eases regulations and provides tax breaks to innovative new businesses. Venture capital activity here comprised 80% of total reported deals in 2021, up from 6% between 2016 and 2020, according to AVCA. 
But investing in African companies also comes with challenges, investors say, including currency volatility, small national economies, limited access to finance and banking services, and political unrest. Walid Sharif is the managing director of Blue Peak Private Capital. If you have a long-term view and if you're well diversified, you can obviously overcome those issues. From outside, you read the news or you think it's scary, it's difficult, but at the end of the day, there's so many opportunities on the ground, so many great businesses, that as long as you put the tools in them and give them a lot of assistance and support, you can definitely help them become strong businesses. Climate change is another major hindrance. Sub-Saharan Africa is expected to suffer disproportionately from extreme weather events, such as floods and drought. This is disruptive to businesses, particularly those in the agricultural sector. Some investors have begun setting climate goals. Clarissa DeFranco is the managing director of British International Investment. Last year, her company set a goal of having 30% of their investments dedicated toward addressing climate change. They will have to have the specific mandate of addressing climate from a resilience uh, adaptation or mitigation point of view. How do we achieve that from a new commitment point of view, but also from a portfolio point of view, is something that we need to explore a bit more. Potential investments might include the renewable energy and plantation sectors, she said. The ABCA conference continues in Dakar through Friday. Annika Hammerschlag for VOA News, Dakar, Senegal. The United Nations is calling for better management to reduce the risks from rapidly increasing natural disasters largely triggered by climate change. The UN Office for Disaster Risks Reduction has issued its 2022 Global Assessment Report, which prescribes solutions to lessen the threatened risks. Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva. The report warns the world is set to face more frequent and extreme disasters and nations are ill-prepared to tackle the dangers. It says the number of natural disasters experienced over the last two decades is five times higher than in the previous three decades. Based on current trends, says Director of the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, Ricardo Mena, the world will face some 560 disasters per year. Disasters have forced over a quarter of a billion people into internal displacement. So that's much more than those that have been displaced by conflict uh, and, and war each year on average between 2010 and 2020. Over the last decade, the cost of disasters has amounted to around $170 billion a year. The UN report notes the Asia-Pacific region bears the greatest share of economic loss, followed by the African region. Mena says it is the poorest countries that are most impacted by disasters, forcing the most vulnerable into a spiral of destruction. But he says that destructive spiral can be stopped if governments adopt better risk reduction policies and management strategies. Governments will need to invest more in disaster resilience, strengthening national budgets to protect people and critical infrastructure. But they also will have to strengthen efforts to avoid the creation of new risk as a result of risk-blind decisions. Mena says decisions people make on how they live, build, and invest can create new risks. For example, he says someone who builds a house in an earthquake-prone area without respecting the building codes is likely to have his house destroyed. A municipality that builds a school in a flood-prone area may see the building washed away. 
Making better decisions, Mena says, can lead to fewer disasters. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. The U.S. government is giving an additional $200 million to support humanitarian initiatives in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Somalia, where more than 20 million people are in need of food, water, and medicine. Lack of rain in the region has led to driest conditions in 40 years. Muhammad Yusuf reports from Nairobi. Speaking online to journalist Sarah Charles of the U.S. Agency for International Development outlined how drought has impacted the lives of millions in the Horn of Africa. The frequency and severity of droughts in the region and the scale of humanitarian needs are increasing, exposing the devastating trend of climate change that disproportionately affects the world's poorest communities. Already, 1.5 million livestock have died. Crops are nearly non-existent in affected areas. In some areas, including Kenya and southern and southeastern Ethiopia, conflict has broken out over scarce resources. An alarming number of children are acutely malnourished, and we're also seeing devastating reports from Somalia of young girls being forced to marry in exchange for food and water. Charles said Tuesday the U.S. government is providing another $200 million to help get food and medical supplies to millions in the region. The aid will boost U.S. government aid for drought victims to more than $360 million this year. However, that number is just a fraction of the funding needed. UN humanitarian agencies say they will need $4.4 billion to fully scale up their relief efforts in the region. According to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, more than 6 million people in the Horn are feeling the impact of the drought. It says more than 750,000 have left their homes in search of water, food and pasture. Some 3 million people are internally displaced in Somalia alone. In even more dire news, UN aid chief Martin Griffiths says 2 million children in the Horn are at risk of starving to death. Aid agencies trying to help hungry people in northern Ethiopia have been hampered by the region's volatile security situation. Charles says the problem is especially acute in the Tigray region. We are facing in Tigray um, really almost unprecedented challenges with access, um, both obstruction um, in terms of bureaucratic obstruction, um, conflict, violence, um, difficulty reaching those who are most in need with assistance. Um, We've seen over the last two weeks Um, small convoys of assistance. The latest one actually yesterday um, reached Mekele for the first time in in several months. A poor start to the rainy season has heightened fears the drought and its impact in the Horn will get worse. Humanitarian agencies say that even if good rains arrive, they cannot quickly reverse the suffering the drought has caused to millions. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. That's all we prepared for you this Thursday. We now end the show with CJ Osman and the song Benia Juba.
We have been listening to CJ Osman and the song Benihia Juba. I'm John Tanz in Washington. Thanks for taking time to be with us this evening. Join us again tomorrow for another edition of South Sudan in Focus from the Voice of America. You know be